It's my favorite part of every superhero movie. It's the origin story, and everybody has one. Welcome to Pinecone Turkey's The Origin Story Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Henry Harris, and it's my privilege to interview superheroes from all walks of life to find out how they got from A to B, to see where they might be going next, and how we all can learn from their journey. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Origin Story Podcast. Merry Christmas and happy holidays. Hope everyone is doing well. This time of year can be very challenging for a lot of people. I love it, but I also recognize the stress. And it's also, it's changing a little bit with uh, my son getting older. Uh, It's a little different kind of Christmas attitude and feel, and I'm kind of missing the older feel and the way things were. Um, I feel like the holiday is a little bit like people talk about money or somebody who comes into a lot of money suddenly. It doesn't necessarily change who you are, but it might reveal it. And sometimes it reveals me not being a really great person. Uh, I've actually been working on uh, doing some either kind of brief form of exercise, like kettlebell swings or meditating before entering a stressful situation, uh, which I find it's helping me a little bit. You know, things like carpool, uh, stuff like that, where I I turn into a big jerk sometimes. Uh, but I try not to. Uh, so that's a tip. It's working for me a little bit. Deep breaths, even like five so or so kind of helps. Uh, another free tip. If you need an amazing gift for someone this holiday season, don't forget Pinecone Turkey's inaugural publishing effort. 12 authors, 12 stories, each inspired by a different month of the year uh, is still available. And it's evergreen. It's 12 amazing stories. And your friends will appreciate that you took the time to get them an independent gift instead of some silly gift certificate or something like that. I promise. Not a guarantee. Uh, you can find it on Amazon and you should buy a few dozen for your friends. So I'm not going to go too far into year-end or decade-ending stuff right now, but my son is all excited about it, uh, making lists and talking about it. So if you're curious at all about what the Owls thought was good and bad this year and decade, by all means, download and listen to the Owls on Culture Podcast. If you're unfamiliar with that, it is where two generations of Owls, me, the dad, and Hank, my son, who's 13, discuss movies, plays, books, YouTube, and more. So check it out if it sounds up your alley. Our superhero this month is the fabulous Margaret Rober. Margaret is a construction professional, having worked in commercial construction market for 27 years. During her career, she's worked on projects for local governments, higher education institutions, K-12 systems, and retail office and hospitality private developers throughout the Southeast. After working her way up through project management tract, she now serves as vice president for winter construction, overseeing all active projects at winter. Today, Margaret works closely with operations leaders to ensure projects success from pre-construction through closeout. She enjoys serving as a sounding board for project teams, working to set project strategy, resolving complex issues, and helping to overcome project challenges. Margaret earned her bachelor's degree in architecture from Georgia Tech. She's a member of the Georgia State Financing and Investment Commission Construction Advisory Committee and serves on the board of directors for Construction Education Foundation of Georgia. She has served on the Georgia Tech College of Architecture Dean's Advisory Committee, the Olmstead Linear Parks Alliance Board, and the Board of Trustees at Haygood Methodist Church. Margaret is a graduate of Leadership Atlanta. She is married and has three daughters. In her free time, she enjoys spending time with family, playing tennis, gardening, and working on various home renovation projects. What a pleasure this was uh, to record. We discuss all kinds of things, including what it's like to be a woman working in a male-dominated industry, 
uh, how she got her first job out of college. It's a great story. Uh, what her ideal No Work Saturday would be. And we also go in-depth in her battle with breast cancer. Uh, it's a really fun podcast. Margaret was a great guest. Uh, I hope you do enjoy listening to this as much as I enjoyed recording it. Our superhero for December, Margaret Roper. Margaret Roper, thanks for being on the podcast. Happy to be here. I'm excited. Yay! It's fun. Uh, Thanksgiving was good? Question mark? Yeah, it was pretty good. Yeah? We did a quick trip. Is that a uh, Thanksgiving a big deal? No. In your fam- no. <laughs> you just don't like being thankful? or No, I love being thankful. <laughs> okay. And we'll come back around to that. All right. I think we'll come back around to being thankful, but right. no, Making I Making a note for thankful. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I mean, it's just Thanksgiving. So. Yeah. All right. I hear that. It's a lot of work to put on a big meal. It is. It is. Mm-hmm. Are you a cook? Do you cook? I do. I like to cook. What do you, uh, what's your, like, your, if I'm coming over and, like, you think I'm much better than I am and want to impress me, what would you, like, no, what's your go-to? Have, I don't have a meal like that. What no, really? I like to cook are things like, um, I like to make soup. Like, in the wintertime, I like to, like, on a Saturday or a Sunday morning, I like to get up and make a huge pot of soup. And then we eat it for lunch all week. Oh, my God, that's awesome. I make a really nice potato soup. I have a really good uh, Thai coconut chicken soup. Oh, I love. That's, was that Tomka guy or something like that? rice, yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you ever go to a Top Spice? Uh, it's been a while. But so yeah. they have their Tomka guy soup I could mm-hmm. swim in and, okay. and die happily. Yeah, so I like to kind of just cook for my family. All right, so, that's cool. That's not a big cool. entertainer, but yes. Uh, a girl I dated, her family, they had a tradition. It was called Soup Saturday. Okay. And like every Saturday, kind of when it got cool at all, that would be mm-hmm. big pots of soup. The whole, like she had a big extended yeah. family would come mm-hmm. over. I kind of dig that. I like to bake a little bit. All right, mm-hmm. I make my own granola. Do you really? Mm-hmm. I just told you. <laughs> I was checking sound levels. Uh, I, know, I know. Earlier, yes, I make my own granola that I eat for breakfast every morning. So it's good. All right, very cool. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. So if you're at a cocktail party and somebody meets you and you're mm-hmm. interested in talking to them and they ask you what you do for a living, what do you tell them? Uh, I tell them I work for a commercial construction company and we build uh, larger projects uh, like hotels, schools, classroom buildings for universities, office buildings, and uh, those sorts of buildings. All right, cool. Mm-hmm. So I want to see how you got to do that in, in, okay. in your journey. So mm-hmm. uh, tell me, where'd you grow up? Uh, I'm originally from Chicago, lived in Chicago until I was 12. And when I was 12, my dad was um, transferred to Atlanta. So I was uprooted and moved to Atlanta when I was 12. Wow. What was that like? It's awful. Tell me about it. Um, Let me think about that. So when we lived in Chicago, we lived in this cool little town. And uh, my dad rode the train to work every day. And he, um, he would walk to the train station, and I walked to school every day, and I had a best friend around the corner, and my best friend and I would walk to school every morning. We walked home for lunch. Our moms were stay-at-home moms, so we came home for lunch every day. Um, we played after school. You know, we hung out. We played after school. We got in big trouble um, when there was this huge blizzard because we were out playing in the snow uh, for, like, hours after school. And they could Nobody not find you. Nobody knew where we were. It was dark out. Anyway, um, so things were pretty cool at that point in time in Chicago, and it was just this idyllic childhood. Um, my friend, my my best friend, and I would um, 
we'd go to town every Saturday and like ride our bikes all over the place. And I had a different friend who, um, in the summertime, we went to the pool together. So, so town was in Chicago, right? Town was like this, the this small town suburb, suburb outside kind of, square of Chicago. Kind of okay. Yeah, yeah, it was really cool. And so Atlanta's very different from that. You know, so when we moved here, um, we lived in Dunwoody, and uh, it really wasn't a bike riding, you know, walking kind of community, and it was really strange. Yeah. Really strange, so. And I had to meet new people, and. How did they explain it to you, the move? Um, they explained it. Let me think about that. I remember them explaining it to me. Uh, my dad had worked for the same company for many, many years, and he's a mechanical engineer, and he was in a manufacturing plant. And uh, at that time, it was Western Electric, was, which was in the AT&T families, and that plant was going to shut down. And so for him to kind of stay with the same company, this was the best opportunity. He had multiple opportunities, and Atlanta was the best opportunity. And is this something... And so that's what we needed to do. Do you have siblings? I have three older sisters. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, how old, like, what's the age? Like, how old were they when this move happened? They were gone out of school, out of the house already. Okay. So um, my sisters are six, eight, and ten years older than me. Okay. So uh, I was like an only child at that point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you remember what you felt when they said you had to move? I told them I didn't want to. They said, well, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> get over it. This is what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Ali, so. that is that's such uh-huh. a hard age to do that. It was. It was. I mean, I, I remember the day that um, that we drove to Atlanta. Like, the movers had come, and they'd taken everything, and we had our last little bit that we, like, crammed into. We had a van. Crammed into the van, and we drove to Atlanta. Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So it was between sixth and seventh grade. Yeah, so. that's like the, I don't know if that's the worst, but it's pretty close to the worst was, of the it age was hard. to move. Yeah, it was really hard. Yeah. Uh, so. Any chance you're still friends with the, the 12-year-old I am. friend? Mm-hmm. No way. My childhood best friend? Yeah. Yeah, I'm still friends with her. Like, we don't talk a lot, but uh, we will talk, I don't know, every year or two. Maybe we'll check in and see how, how you know, the other one's doing. Oh, I love that. And now that there's texting, we text every now and then when something's happening, so... I got mm-hmm. you. Yeah. Uh, so what was the biggest cultural difference bes- just besides the biking and the moving? Or is, did, you, was, did you pick up on other things as well? Or was that, that generally what you noticed? To me, it was just the community. Like there was a real sense of community where I grew up. And then where we moved to was really just not quite the same. Yeah. You know. Uh, so you went to high school in Dunwoody as well? I did. Mm-hmm. What high school did you go to? Dunwoody High School. Well, all right. Then. Mm-hmm. What's their mascot? Uh, I believe it's the Wildcats. Is all that right. right? Go Wildcats. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. It's all a blur <laughs> at this point anything. in time. It's a blur. I'm pretty sure it's a Dunwoody Wildcats. What kind of high schooler were you? Um, I was um, I was very quiet, a very quiet kid. Um, I, was, I was in the advanced classes. I kind of kept to myself. I was the kind of high school student that had kind of a couple of close friends along the way. I wasn't really into the large groups. I didn't play any sports. Uh, you know, I was a pretty good student. Um, I worked when I was in, sc- in high school. Tell me about that. So, um, where'd you work? <laughs> uh, my husband will laugh about this. So my first job, my first paying job was in an ice cream store. And if anyone, you know, if you really know me, I've got quite a sweet tooth. And he's like, come on, how could they trust you in an ice cream store? <laughs> yeah. so, um, and you had this sweet tooth before this job as well? Oh, yeah. Okay. And so, um, 
Yeah, so I I probably I, I broke the rules and ate ice cream when I wasn't supposed to, but that didn't last long. <laughs> I worked in an ice cream store. I worked in at Kroger. I worked in the deli at Kroger. That was really glamorous, and um, and I worked at the Limited. Remember the Limited? I worked at Perimeter Mall. I don't actually remember the Limited. <laughs> the Limited at Perimeter Mall. It's on the upper level on the JCPenney wing. So, so. was this mm-hmm. uh, your idea to work? Was this something instilled by your parents that said, you know, you need to get a job if you're... So uh, I had three older from? sisters that always worked. You know, they had part-time jobs at various times in high school and in college. And so I think I just thought that's what you did. And um, I did cut this deal with my dad when I was in high school one time where I wanted him to buy me something. We were on a trip together. And um, I don't know why we were shopping, but there was, we were in a mall or something, and there was something I wanted. I said, will you buy that? And somehow the outcome of this transaction was that my next job, I would split my paycheck with him where half of it, it wasn't really with him, but half of it would go into my college savings and half of it I would keep and spend. And so that was right before the Kroger job. Okay. And so, and Kroger paid me in cash. So every Friday I would go to the, um, you know, the manager's office and they had a cash drawer and I would, they'd show me my, my pay stub and then they'd pay me in cash. Why were they paying you in cash? That's the weirdest thing I've heard. I, I don't know. I have no idea. I didn't even question it at the time. You know, I'm 16 years old. I didn't question it. And so I would come home, and we would split my cash. And if it was a penny, odd penny, I got to keep it. Okay. And so he took the other part, and it went into savings. And so I learned how to save at that time. That's a great lesson. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've asked some people we know to feed mm-hmm. me questions and ideas, and oh, so gosh. here's one of them. <laughs> okay. Uh, what is the Dunwoody curbside market? <laughs> That's so funny. So, um, <laughs> and is there? Do you have any guess at what that is? I, I well, I mean, I know what all those words mean, but so, um, <laughs> not really. There's also a Hinsdale curbside market. Hinsdale is the town we lived in outside of Chicago. And so my dad is a mechanical engineer, I said, but he is um, a do-it-yourselfer. He's very handy. He can fix anything. No kidding. Yes. And so when I grew up, if something needed to be fixed or dealt with around the house, we did it ourselves. And so I grew up as a helper in a lot of renovation projects and other things in our older home in Chicago. And uh, my dad, if someone was throwing something away... They put it on the curb, right? And when he would walk, because he walked every day, because we had dogs, he'd, he'd you know, walk, and if there was something that caught his eye, he would pick it up. And the categories he would look for are typically um, broken furniture. And a lot of times it was antiques, and so, okay. he, and, and so he could refinish furniture and fix anything and make parts for... You know, a lot of times yeah. people would get rid of a chair just because it was missing one of the little rungs at the bottom. And he's like, well, I can make that. So he'd make it and fix it. And they'd turn into like beautiful pieces of furniture. So mm-hmm. uh, follow up question. I what? might have something from one of those curbside markets in my house. Oh, very cool. I think so. Oh, I mm-hmm. I'd have that. to check. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what, uh, what is the follow up to that funny. was what are the best items ever procured there? So I don't know if that was digging for something specific or not. So I, I don't know. Okay. Um, I think there's a dresser in my daughter's room, which is really pretty antique dresser that I think might have come from a curbside market. Did you uh, so. did you recognize that those skills are, are rare or 
Or did you appreciate that ability in your I dad at the time, or were you embarrassed as a kid? And that sounds. But now I think normal. it's pretty cool. Um, yeah, I think it's. I'm kind of proud of that because I learned how to do. I wish I could do more, but I learned how to do some of those things. That's what I was going to ask. Um, like, you feel? Yeah. I mean, I, if I could, you know, if I could go buy an old house and renovate it top to bottom, I would love that. Really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would. That says a lot right there. That, that's, yeah. that's a good description of somebody. I like, to, I like to work with, I like to do that sort of thing. I like to see what I've accomplished and see what I've done myself. Yeah, it feels good so, to do something with your yeah, hands. I have, a, I have a table in my house that I, I actually bought it at like an antique kind of flea market kind of place. And it's a cool pub table with the, with the um, top that folds, you know, it slides in or it yeah. slides out and then it folds into a bigger table uh, that I got at an antique place back when I was probably in my, I don't know, early mid-20s. And it just needed to be refinished and I refinished it and it's really pretty. I love so, that. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love that. I have mm-hmm. zero of those skills. So I well, like I don't it. do a, a lot of it now because I'm busier, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, very cool. That's cool. Uh, That's a funny question. <laughs> what did you want to be when like you were in high school? Did you have any idea? So I'll go before high school. Oh, sweet. So when I was probably uh, eight or nine, ten, somewhere in that range, I knew that I wanted to be an architect. So, so where did that come from? I don't know. Well, I'm not exactly sure when the light bulb went off that I was going to be an architect, but um, we lived in a house in Chicago that was built in the 20s. And it was a really cool house, and we renovated ourselves. When you say it was a really cool house, what are you thinking of? Hardwood floors, a lot of cool details. It had this um, semi, I wouldn't call it grand, but this cool staircase at the front of the house. Um, High ceilings, that sort of thing. Okay. So just kind of older architecture. And so I did a lot of work you know, with my dad and, uh, we were, he's very meticulous. So things took a long time. And when I was a kid there, I, I hated it in a lot of ways cause my friends were, you know, playing and I had to help, um, help do all these things, but it was also pretty cool. Um, my grandmother also had a house, uh, from the late 1800s that was at one point in Mississippi that was at one point in time, you know, some kind of plantation type house. And um, it was so cool. And she used to tell me stories about how the house had been changed over time. She would tell me about when they first got indoor plumbing and about the sleeping porch and, you know, when, you know, just, just different things about right. the house. And, and they were one of the first houses in that small town that had like a real bathtub, not the kind with feet, you know, one that was in place and, and that sort of thing. And she'd tell me all these stories about how this house changed. And it was a small town. Um, in Mississippi with a lot of old houses and I just kind of had this appreciation for older homes That's at really, that point. Really cool. So somewhere along the way I figured out that there was a, you know, a profession and I could be an architect. And so, so I was going to be an architect. I knew that as a kid. I took a drafting class in high school, really enjoyed that. You know, I was always good at math and, and uh, so I went to tech for my architecture degree it stuck all the way through. I love this. And uh, went to tech, and I have a I have a undergraduate in architecture. So uh, I know zero about architecture. Mm-hmm. What do you learn in an undergraduate arch- architecture program? <laughs> um, it's a hard program. 
Uh, the worst you. part of it was when everybody else was hanging out, partying, getting ready for the weekend and Friday afternoons, I was still in studio. So for four years straight, I had design studio Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from two to six o'clock. Oh, that's brutal. <laughs> it was brutal. <laughs> it was brutal. So you have four years of design studio and you have various projects that you complete over those four years and you take classes in structures and uh, you know you have some kind of basic information about HVAC design, you have architecture history class. What else did I take? Tell me, uh, yeah. uh, tell me about one of the projects or tell me, tell me a light bulb moment if, if you can think of one. During school? Yeah. Your architectural education, or just a project Gosh. that you in like mm-hmm. either hated or loved. We designed a classroom building, and I, I can't remember. It was either my third or fourth year. We designed a classroom, and I cannot remember. So what they do is they give you this kind of case study, and a lot of times it wasn't real life. You know, like it was just kind of weird, and a lot of that was just teaching you to be creative and problem solve, and you know, come up with your own theories of of how you wanted to design your your project. And this is a classroom building. And I designed this really cool exterior wall that kind of had two walls. And there's an inner wall and an outer wall, and it had vertical spaces in between so that as the sun moved around the building during the day, it would cast shadows inside the classroom in a certain in a certain cool way. I remember this very vaguely, but I got a really good grade on that on that uh-huh. project. And it was kind of one of those that I, I really I felt pretty good about this. And and there was some connection to whatever they were teaching or learning of why I came up with this exterior wall scenario. Right. So, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you graduated from tech. I did. Did you, are you still, when you're graduating, wanting to be an architect? Or? I was. So I wanted to be an architect. When I graduated, those jobs were few and far between. And so one thing about the architecture program at tech when I was there, and it, it may still be this way, but there were about 200 kids that started the program. When I graduated, there were about 40. <laughs> wow, so, that's a huge Yeah, <laughs> a that huge was my gap. class. That was my class. So... Um, and even at that point in time, of the 40 of us, I want to say three or four had jobs. And on top of that, the jobs that you were going to get at that point in time were so low paying. I mean, when you start as an architect, you're not making anything. Who are you like working? Are you working for, like theoretically? Who are mm-hmm. are you interviewing with? Like big firms or like I small to, people? Well, or like what do you? You can't hang at, a shingle, at, right? At that point in time, I didn't know anybody. You know, and I was getting out of school, and I was like, I didn't really know how to how to look for a job. Yeah. And so uh, I think I had an interview or two in Atlanta at some point in time, but my, um, I had an aunt and uncle who were in Houston, and my uncle had a nephew who was an architect and said, come to Houston, and you know, I'll get you an interview or two. And so I interviewed with a couple firms in Houston as well. So, but, so when I got out of school, the jobs were few and far between, and so my plan B was to go right into my master's of architecture. Oh, okay. And so I had applied to a couple of schools from the master's program. I was accepted at Tech, and um, so that was kind of my plan B when I did not have a job. When so. you, did you envision? What did you envision planning? Were you like commercial? Was there a residential, or what, what is it? Is the program geared towards both, or did you have a preference? You know, I don't think I had a clue. Okay. Yeah. So at twenty-two, I don't know. I just had this architecture degree. I wanted <laughs> I know, to figure I didn't it out. <laughs> I didn't have a clue. So, um, you know, so I, I never have worked as an architect though. So you know, I'm, I work for a construction company. Right. And um, so that was 
me tell you that story about yeah, how I, how I, I switched I over? Wanna, well, you okay. said a plan B, and I don't think you got a master's, right? Or did you not? Or? So I started my master's. Okay, you did. Okay. I did start it. I did not finish it. My dad calls me a dropout to this day. <laughs> yeah. um, but in the spring of my senior year, there were a few professionals uh, you know, who came in to speak to the graduating seniors in the architecture program. I think it was three or four people, and uh, a couple were architects in town, and one was the owner of a construction company. And he was, uh, the owner of the construction company was this very energetic, um, engaging speaker, and he planted this seed that said, just because you've got an architecture degree doesn't mean you've got to be an architect. You can do all these other things, too. Work for a construction company, and he was, so he owned a construction company, and he had also recently started a real estate development um, focus and focused on adaptive reuse, meaning that he was taking these old buildings and renovating them for something else. And so he was opening, like in a couple of weeks from when he was speaking, he was opening one of his first projects, which was the Carriage Works building over near Tech behind Tech on Mean Street, um, I'm trying to think of, uh, you know, just kind of behind Marietta Street. And so it was an old buggy factory, brick, you know, brick walls, really cool, heavy timber framing. And uh, they had renovated it and were moving their office into this space. And I was like, wow, that's cool. Because remember, I like historic architecture. That's right. And I said, that's pretty cool. And so he extended an invitation to everybody who was there hearing him speak to come to his open house. And I said, that's cool, I'll go do that. So I went to the open house, and uh, when I got there and I saw him, I walked right up to him and said, hi, I heard you speak, I was at your session, thanks for having me, I'm you know, Margaret Harris at the time, and, uh, you know, and he thought that was pretty cool. And so his assistant called me the following week and said, come in for an interview. And I was like, well, sh- I wanna be an architect, but why not? Why not? I'll go interview. So let me let me pause you pause you right here. So mm-hmm. is this given what you told me about how you were in high school? Is this mm-hmm. out of character for you? Is this yes, yes, very much so. Do you, I really pushed myself. Did you do you remember like what your um, kind of self talk was going into this? I took a friend talk? with me. Okay, number one, I, I gathered a friend Smart. to go with me to this event, and. Uh, I don't know. I was just excited about his project. I was excited about the building. I wanted to go see it. Oh, I love that. It's cool that. old architecture. Yeah. And so, uh, so yeah, so I was called for an interview, and I went in on a Saturday, and I interviewed with four executives. And uh, I don't know I don't know how I really did at that interview, but I was kind of excited about it, about the construction side of things, because I just never thought about construction. I just right. didn't know that was... I was clueless, like we said. You know, when you're 22, you don't know a lot of stuff. And and I just had this idea since I was a kid that I was going to be an architect, and I never really kind of thought <laughs> right. near it. You know, I just had this one idea, and so I focused on that one idea. And so he kind of planted a seed, and I was really excited about it. So I leave the interview, and uh, this is before email, of course. And <laughs> uh, I got a letter in the mail that week with my rejection letter. Oh, wow. And I said, well, okay, no big deal. I want to be an architect. No big deal. I'm going to keep on going. So I interviewed, you know, I tried to get some interviews with architecture firms and that sort of thing. Didn't pan out. Started my master's degree. Okay. So I, I start school. I'm two or three weeks in. And I said, I'm miserable. 
I hate this. I'm done with school. I worked really hard for four years. I don't want to do. I don't want to be here. I'm done. So it wasn't what school. you wasn't what you were learning. You were just done with school in general. Yeah, I was just done. Yeah. I never really. I, I was always a good student, but I wouldn't say I'm an academic. Really, I just. I was just a good student because I was supposed to be a good student, you know. So um, it's two or three weeks in. I had this part-time job where I was like, like a kind of a semi-bookkeeper of sorts for this little research institute at Tech. And I remember being in the office that day, going, "Oh gosh, what am I going to do?" And I picked up the phone and I called the man who owned the the gentleman who I've been speaking about. I call him, and he answers his phone. Okay, and it's a desk phone, right? There's no cell phones at this point in time. It's a desk phone. So he happens to be sitting in his office, and he answers his phone. And I, I uh, said, this is Margaret Harris. I interviewed with you back in the spring. Do you remember me? And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember you. And I said, well, I would like to know why you didn't offer me a job. Oh, my God, I and love he that. he says, um, he laughs. He chuckles. <laughs> and he says, well, honestly, you didn't convince us that you didn't want to be an architect. And we didn't want to invest in you if you weren't going to stay with us because we felt like you wanted to be a designer and not a builder. And you just didn't convince us. And I said, well, what if I could convince you now? And he says, well, then you'd have a job. I said, great, when can I start? <laughs> and he does that. He oh, laughs. He, he chuckles at me. And he says, come on back in and talk to us again. So I went back in. I inter- talked to a couple people, kind of semi-interview at this point in time. And, uh, and they hired me. No, that's amazing, first of all. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a story. I actually tell this story a lot. I didn't for a long time. I didn't tell the story really for a long time. And at one point in time, I, I talked to, I, I told the story to somebody I work with now who's like, wow, that's a really good story. And we were in, uh, he's my boss who's telling me this. And uh, we were in this panel on an executive panel with some interns at work you know, where they were asking Q&A, you know, there was Q&A type thing. And he says to me, he goes, you need to tell your story to these interns. And so I did. And then now it's like this, you know, tell your story, you know, sort of thing, because I think it's a great, I really stepped out of my, I was way out of my comfort zone. But it's an example of taking control of your career and what's next. And I was at a point where I was so, I just didn't want to be in school so badly that I was like, I got to do something. I got to take control. And um, I, was, I had moved home. I was living with my parents. I'm like, I, I got to, it's time to move on. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, ready to, I'm ready to live on my own, have a job, and move on. And so I think about that day a lot. Because number one, what got into me? Like, what was I thinking? Uh, It's a little out of character. It was out of character for me then. It's not out of character for me today. But it was really out of character for me then. Um, But I'm really glad I did it. And I'm really glad he was sitting at his desk that day. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Um, Had you really abandoned the plans of being an architect? Or or were you just got to start life? Um, or a little bit of both. A little bit of both. Yeah. A little bit of both. Because I, I questioned it, you know, a few years into working, I questioned it like, gosh, because then I'm working with architects. And so they're making decisions about design. And as a builder, you're carrying them out. And you don't have, you don't always have any say in what that design is. And I'm, I miss that a little bit. So, 
but I'm really good on the building side. So a lot of people don't understand. When I say I work for a commercial construction company, they're like, okay. And they have no idea what that means. I'm one right? of those. Okay. <laughs> Let's right? change that. And so, yeah, they have no idea what it means. Or they have a perspective of, you know, some construction worker, you know, that's maybe a negative perception or stereotype, right? And so, so yeah, we'll fix it today. But I, I will say early when I was, when many years ago, you know, um, go to a party. Back to your question. I'm at a party. <laughs> yeah, what do right. you tell people you do? And I would say I work for a construction company. My husband, who's always wanting to tell a joke, says, yeah, she hangs drywall. Okay, well, I don't hang drywall. <laughs> don't hang drywall. Um, but so, so to build a building of some complexity requires a lot of different traits. And to me, it's a big puzzle. And so when you're building a building, number one, you're starting with a blank canvas. And it's your job, you know, as construction manager to put a plan in place to, to put that puzzle together. And you can, depending on the size of the project, there could be hundreds of different people that contribute to that process, okay? And all of these hundreds or more people need to know what the plan is. And there's a sequence that needs to be worked out. There's a heck of a lot of coordination that needs to happen between different trades. And uh, there's safety to think about and logistics and it's 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 high risk in a lot of ways um, because margins can be thin at times and a lot of things can go wrong so um, to me that's that's pretty cool it's just one big puzzle so I like to plan and I like to put those things together so, so. when you first mm-hmm. started what mm-hmm. kind of things were you doing how did you because that sounds amazing but yeah. also sounds stupidly difficult Mm-hmm. How did you go about gaining the skills and learning to be able to, to it's do so that much final on the job. thing? It's just so much on the job. What I had going for me coming out of school with an architecture degree uh, was I, I knew how to read plans. I, I knew, you know, I could, I could navigate a set of plans decently. Um, most of my peers, uh, you know, at that point, I mean, still are civil engineers. So I work with a lot of people who have a, who have a degree in civil engineering or... A degree in building science or construction management or something like that and so I was I was different um, where I had a little maybe just from square one I had a better understanding of of a set of plans but I didn't have any any of the construction training really from school and so I learned it all on the job and um, I asked I asked some questions but I also tended to be somebody to watch first and then ask my questions. I was a little ju- judicious with my questions, and I probably shouldn't have been, but um, it's on I'm just on the job. And you're just the dumb person for a while, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I mean, I was. You're yeah. the inexperienced dumb person who's trying to figure it out. And I worked crazy hours. Mm-hmm. So. Um, so many different directions we can mm-hmm. go right now. Uh, I imagine you were one of few females mm-hmm, in the industry at this time. I was. Still am. Mm-hmm. What was that like, especially being 22, 23, yeah, so, walking into that environment? So I, I actually gave a talk um, back in the summer um, at a leadership development type of day for another construction company, not in Atlanta, outside of the Atlanta market. Um, and I talked about that. And in prepping for that, you know, in prepping for that talk, so I've been in the business now for... Uh, 27 years 
And I gave that talk and I broke it down into three areas of my career. The early years, kind of middle management, and then as an executive. And in the early years, you know, I realized I didn't know. I didn't have a clue. I didn't know what I was stepping into. I just, again, I just wanted that job. I just needed to like get on with life. And I thought building would be cool. And I didn't realize it that I was stepping into an industry that was male dominated. I mean, right? I didn't have a clue. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that was probably good at first. And then I kind of slowly realized it. And I had, I had a little quote that I had on my bulletin board in my first cubicle oh, way back me. when, which was, and I don't, know, I don't know who to attribute it to, but it was, those who never fail are those who never try. And that's what I did for the first several years. That's what I told myself. I got to try. Oh, I, I just love try. that. So, so I did that, and I felt like I was pretty smart and that I would just figure it out. And I would find people who were friendly and nice and willing to help me, and I would latch right on to anybody who was willing to help me. So, um, so as far as being, you know, one of the few females, um, what's strange is my first, one of my first bosses when I was on a job site was another woman. And so I kind of had an example. That's wonderful. I wouldn't say a role model, but I had an example. Okay. So I had somebody to, to work with. And so it wasn't quite as scary that I wasn't the only one. So I, I spent, I mean, my first, um, my first project where I worked on a job site was uh, a retail center in Alpharetta. Okay. Called North Point Market. If anybody's ever been there, it's still there. So I did that <laughs> way back when. Um, and uh, I went to a holiday party that year. And one of the carpenters from the job site, when he saw me at the holiday party, said, oh, look, there's a secretary from the job site. So, no kidding. Yeah. Yeah. So, so those are the kind of things I dealt with early on. And I've had a lot of people call me sugar and darling and honey and that sort of thing. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I want to go back to uh, the woman you worked with on that first job site. Mm-hmm. What did you see her doing that you either said, that's the way I want to do it, or that's the way I don't want to do it? I don't think I was ready to form those opinions yet. Okay. I, I wasn't ready for that yet. I was trying to keep my head above water. Yeah. What about so. now? What about now? For Now, looking back on it. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it may not be a good question. Yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, do you want to? Oh, I kind of want to hear the rest of the speech. I mean, not not the full oh, deal, I can talk but like, about it. yeah, I'll talk about it a little bit. So, so early. So, one of the things that that stuck out for me too is handshakes, and so that's one of my pet peeves is a weak handshake. And I don't know where I got that from. I have no idea. Well, I don't think anybody but, likes a weak handshake. Well, but. You know, it's, I ran across people who shook my hand differently than my male peer. Okay. And that's why it started bothering me. Gotcha. And I said, I'm not going to do that. 
So I'm going to have a firm handshake. And I think that's important. If I had advice for young people, like go figure out how to have a firm handshake with everybody, right? It's important. It's, a, it's, such, a, it's such a small life skill, but it's so important. And um, so that was early. And so that was the kind of stuff I dealt with early on is, is you know, sugar darling. And, and as I kind of moved up the ranks, I remember I had an interaction with one subcontractor who had sent his bill in for the month and I had revised his bill. And that's, that's typical in the, in the industry is, you know, you want to make sure that you're billing for the work that's in place and not ahead. Mm. And so I had made this modification, and this man called and said, who do I need to talk to about this? I said, you got her. I'm, <laughs> yeah. It's me. You can talk to me about it. That's right. I'm right here. And he asked two or three more times. And finally I said, I'm the project manager. You can talk to me. And so then he talked to me, but it took three rounds to get there for him to then talk to me. Right. And then we had a conversation about it and it was fine. Um, I had a subcontractor offer me a seat in his lap once. So I walked into a, uh, we, I was on a job site and, uh, and when I say I'm on a job site, you know, I'm working in, in one of those trailers that you see in an office in a trailer. And uh, we had an OSHA inspection and when you go through an OSHA inspection, there's a closing conference that's, ha- that's held with all of the, um, the foremen from the different trades, plus the, the contractor, who is me, you know, me and the rest of my team. And I had been working to gather everybody together to get them into the conference trailer so that we could have our closing conference. And again, this is, I think a few people had cell phones at this point in time. I'm making myself sound really old, but not everybody <laughs> had a cell phone. And so there are job site radios and that sort of thing. But anyway, so I was corralling people into this um, room and it was crowded. And I was the last one who walked into the room and I kind of looked around to see if there was a seat and he patted his, he patted his leg and said, you know, come on. <laughs> and, uh, and I looked at him and I said, I can't believe you just said that or did that. And I said, I'm fine here. And I stood so for the meeting. Well, that so, I was about to ask yeah. how you handle that. I've, uh, back in my politics mm-hmm. days and then sort of mm-hmm. in the law days, I've seen horrible things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm always fascinated right. with how uh, the person handles that and the different right. tactics. And I have different friends of mine that use different methods. Mm-hmm. What, what have yeah, you learned over your years? I just looked at him years? and smiled and said, I can't believe you just said that. And just kind of like, kind of like I'm doing right now (laughs) and then did my thing. And, you know, that was, that there was a shift along the way because I think I spent my early years trying not to be different and trying not to be bothered by things because I felt like that's what I was supposed to do. And then as I moved up, you know, through, you know, different titles and that sort of thing, my my challenges came from my peers then and that was harder you know challenges from a subcontractor or folks in the trade or you know sometimes people would call you darlin and they really didn't mean anything by it but sometimes right. they would call you darlin like and they did mean something by it and you could kind of tell and um you know i moved up and then it and then it was more about my peers and where my peers who were men you know said things like, you better watch your back, she's out to get you, she couldn't build a doghouse, um, she shouldn't have been promoted, things like that. So that was harder. 
I mean, all the other external stuff and people don't shake your hand. I mean, who cares really, you know? And so then we kind of went to this, you know, this next route where it was really an internal, internal challenge. And uh, somebody gave me some good advice who said, you just keep doing what you're doing and don't worry about it. Just keep working hard, stay above the fray, just, just do the best job you can do. And that was good advice. So don't what, engage, don't, you know, and I didn't. So, so how did you, what did you do internally to be able to stay above the fray, to not engage, to do your work? Because that doesn't just happen. No, it doesn't. Um, I'm trying to remember, really, because that was a while back. Um, I think I started reading, reading some books. You know, there, there are some books that, you know, are geared toward women in leadership roles and that sort of thing. Do you remember any of, any of them? I really don't, you know, and some were just general leadership books. And so I kind of went inward to just kind of figure it out on my own. I didn't, I didn't really have a mentor or a role model or anything like anybody like that at that time. Um, I had people who I knew thought I did a good job and I thought about that, but I also worked for a man who, um, who was not all that, um, respectful <laughs> of people, generally, um, including women. Uh, he, he, he was somebody I did not want to be like, and I worked for this man for a while, and he passed me over for a promotion, promoted a couple of my peers, and I knew I was as good, if not better, than they were. And, uh, and so I quit. I just walked out one day. When he told me that that, that had happened, I said, all right. And I went to my office, and I picked up my bag and I went home. No kidding. I did. I did. I went home. I was just like, that's, that's just, you know, that's bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, quite frankly. And I went home and I remember it was, I think it was summertime, spring or summer. It was a really nice day. And I remember getting, <laughs> getting a beer out of my refrigerator <laughs> and going to my backyard and cracking it open and sitting. I have this swing in my backyard that my dad built for me. And uh, at some point in time, and I sat in this swing, cracked open the beer, and said, well, what am I going to do now? Okay, and um, call my husband. I called a couple people I worked with who I was, you know, had a, you know, was friends, friends with at work, and talked to a couple people, and uh, said, huh, what have I done? And, and the CEO of the company emailed me. And so, because I had my I had my company laptop and everything at that point in time, this company CEO emailed me and says, um, "I'm out of town right now. I cannot talk to you until next week. Please don't quit. I want to talk to you next week. But in the meantime, please go talk to you know this other you know vice president of the company. You can go have coffee with him, maybe or you know whatever. Please go talk to him." I said, "That's fine. I'll talk to you guys. But I'm done. Done. I'm not working for this guy. I'm done." And uh, maybe it was a Thursday, I don't know. And so I think Friday morning I had coffee with the, the, the other vice president, whatever the title was, the, my boss's boss, basically. And, um, you know, I said, I said, look, you know, and I basically said, here are all the things that have been going on for a couple of years that you may not know about because mm -hmm. there were some very um, just awful things this man said to me, awful. And... Uh, 
and he, he, you could tell by his face, he was like, oh, crap. <laughs> really? <laughs> you know, and, and then the other thing I said, I said, but forget all that. You know, if I wasn't, if I wasn't on track to be promoted, where was my feedback? You know, I didn't get any feedback. Nobody told me I was doing anything wrong. All my feedback has been positive that I'm doing a good job. So I, you know, what gives? Right. And so he gave me some feedback. He goes, here's, here's my perception. And he, he told me a few things. And I said, well, hmm, I don't agree with that, right? Whatever the feedback was. And I said, but I appreciate it. And we had a long conversation. And um, I said, okay, I'll see ya. <laughs> and and uh, at the end of that coffee or whatever, I said, okay. And I said, I'll think about what you've said. And so CEO gets back in town and I meet with him. I think he calls me on Monday and he goes, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm painting my dining room. I had decided to <laughs> do a little project around the house. And so I've now been you know, unemployed for a couple of days. And he, uh, he says, oh man, you really did quit. I'm like, well, yeah. I mean, I meant it, right? Why would I, why would I quit if I didn't mean it? You know? And uh, he says, come, have, come meet with me. Let's go, let's go have coffee. And I said, okay. Because I said, I'm not coming to the office. Just not coming to the office. So we, we met, had coffee. And, you know, a lot of the same things. I told him some of the things that I'd been, that I'd experienced and, um, um, and that, that feedback's important. You know, I'd been passed over and, you know, and uh, he said, well, here's, here's, I want you to come to the office. He says, because I want you to have an apology. And he says, whether you come back to work or not, we owe you an apology. And, uh, and I really want you to come back to work. And something, whatever that, however that conversation played out, I said, all right, I'll come back to work. And um, the man I worked for says, I'm really sorry you got upset. <laughs> of course, of course. That was did. my apology. <laughs> but I was smart enough at that point in time to know that he probably wouldn't be around long in that company. You could see the writing and on the wall. I wanted to be, in, I wanted to be there. I really wanted to be there. And this is the same company same that you started with. Yeah. And you're still mm-hmm. with them now, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, um, yeah. And so, and it was true. So it took about, it took a little less than a year. Wow. For, for him to be gone. And uh, so that was, that was hard. But at that point in time, that taught me a lot. I mean, it really taught me a lot because the CEO asked me, he says, why didn't you say anything? about all these things that he was saying and, you know, and, and uh, I said, because I was the only woman in the room at the table. I was the only woman. And nobody else seemed bothered by all these awful things that he was saying or the way he acted or, you know, and, and, and he was, he, he, liked to, he liked to take people out drinking, you know, after work a good bit. And that's where the behavior really was pretty bad. And uh, they didn't know that was going on. And uh, he said, why didn't you say anything? And I said, I didn't want to, I didn't, I've been, I've been working all this time to not be different, you know? And that was, that was wrong, you know? I should have said something. So, you know. What would you, um, and you know, there's all this, you know, talk about being an ally and speaking out. What, mm-hmm. what would you, what, what would you want from your male peers who were acquiescing by silence? I was pretty mad at them. I forgot about that. I was. I was pretty mad at them. Sure. Like, why didn't one of you guys say something? Um, remember, some of these people were the peers that were not supportive of me. Right. So I didn't say anything. 
I think I talked to one or two, one or two of them, but, but there were probably, I probably had six or seven peers, like same title at that point in time. And, um, yeah, that's a really good question, Michael. They could have said, <laughs> said something too. So yeah, so it, it, it worked out though. It worked out and it really taught me a lot. Um, it, it taught me number one, that I need to, I need to say something. Um, and number two, I need to trust in myself and my abilities and be confident in what I was doing. And, um, which you already were is what it uh, sounds like. But, yeah. I yeah. Mean. I was doing pretty well. Yeah. I was doing pretty well. Um, you know, so a couple of years after that, I, uh, I got promoted into the role I'm in now. And, um, so my current role, I oversee all of our operations right now. And so we are, uh, you know, so we're, we're a locally owned company. We only work, most of our work's in Atlanta, but we work throughout the Southeast. And, um, um, how big is your, I have so no I, sense I of manage, like how many so, people work there. So how many, well, so from a revenue standpoint, I would say we're a mid-sized commercial contractor. And, um, this year will be about 175 million in revenue. Okay. Okay. Um, and so any active project, so I manage that revenue. So any active project that's you know under construction, I'm in charge of. So you're so. managing all the different projects mm-hmm. and do each individual project, they like how does how does how does there's this a whole, industry organize? I mean, there's a whole so each project so each project that's underway will have a project manager and a superintendent, you know, as a basic partnership. And they'll have staff, you know, depending on the size of the project they may have each have one or two people working for them, you know, could be four or five and, um, they'll report to them, you know, so there's a project manager, there's senior project manager, there's a project executive, there's a director level, and then me after that. And so I have about right now, I probably have about 85 people that fall up underneath my umbrella, salaried folks. That doesn't count hourly folks that are in the field and that sort of thing, so. Okay, so I wanna come, I wanna talk mm-hmm. about this for a second, but I, mm-hmm. I don't wanna leave the, um, like the the workplace issues. Mm-hmm. Just, I just, other than a firm handshake, what other advice would you give to mm-hmm. somebody in in that position? And you may have already mm-hmm. said it with speaking mm-hmm. out and being confident. And sure, for a woman, yeah. Women need, women need to speak out, they, they need to add, everyone, everyone needs to advocate for themselves. You know, and that's just the world we're in. And I think everybody learning to advocate for yourself is important. Um, you know, but but my 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 mindset has shifted a little bit because I think that you know I spent many years thinking that it was it was mine to reading books about you know being an effective female leader and things like that, right? Which was important, but. And there's a lot of focus on teaching women how to be assertive in the right way or, you know, balance, work-life balance or how to be a working mom. <laughs> and, you know, there's a lot Why of stuff like, like that. that. Well, because what I really think is the message needs to go to the men. You know, that's where I've really shifted. You know, it, it's been all about, okay, women, you, you know, ladies, you've got, you've got these challenges in front of you. Here's how you overcome. Okay, but what about the men, right? What about them? Right. You know, what about the, the, the biases or, you know, whether as innocent as they are, everybody's got a bias. 
And, um, you know, what, where's the message there? You know, and that's kind of where I am. That's where yeah. I've been. And I think that's a good place to be. I think that's, mm-hmm. I think our society is kind of there. It is. There, at least with racial issues as sure. well. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's not yeah. our job to educate you. Like, right. you yeah. get your shit together. Right. You know, <laughs> you figure it out. Yeah. And, um, and so I spent many years trying to fit in or not be, you know, not be that person, the, the crazy lady, you know, and I think it's okay to be, be the crazy lady every now and then, you know, and so the talk I gave that I was talking about before that I gave earlier in the summer, when I was talking to the CEO of that company who asked me to come speak, I said, what's your objective for the talk? And he says, I think it'd be great for some of our young women to see a successful female leader in construction. And I said, well, what about the men? And he didn't know what I meant. He didn't know what I meant. But I think it's really good for everyone to see successful leaders. And part of my talk, I asked, um, you know, I, I, I really said, I really hate this topic. I hate talking about being a woman in the industry because it shouldn't be an issue. Everyone should be just judged based on their own capabilities and how hard they work and their talents and their skills, not on all these other things. So, but reality is different than what I wish for. And so uh, it's, a lot, it's a lot better than when I started in the industry. That's good. Nobody calls me sugar anymore. <laughs> so I promise you that. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's, there's a message for, for everybody and it's not, to me, that's the problem. It's not, it's not having young women see successful women. Not that that's a bad thing, but it's let's, how about the young men? They need to see a successful woman as well. And so, you know, at some point in time, I, I heard in an interview question when, when someone at my company was interviewing a candidate, you know, how do you feel about working for a woman? And at some point in time, I said, time out. We do not need to ask that question anymore. And at that point in time, I felt comfortable enough because I got pushback from it. Like, they didn't understand. Like, why shouldn't I answer? As some people don't like working for women. I said, well, that's their problem. Oh, like, those are the kind of people we're not going to hire. <laughs> so, so, you know, and when you ask that question, do you think you're going to get an honest answer? from someone who doesn't want to work for a woman, right? right? And so so all the way around, the question didn't make sense. But I got to a point where I was like, no, no. No one needs to ask that question ever again at this company. And I got pushed back, and I said, you know what? Out of respect for me, please stop asking that question. And it stopped right there. And so, you know, to me, that's different. I wouldn't have done that 10 years ago, but I'd do that today. Um, so yeah, it's cool, and there's still challenges. I mean, you know, it's just the way it's just the way the world works sometimes. Us humans are wonderful always. Mm-hmm. I said, us humans are wonderful always, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, tell me, I want to talk logistics about mm-hmm. managing that many projects and that mm-hmm. many people. Mm-hmm. What uh, systems do you have in place <laughs> that that kind of make that run? <laughs> Let me think about that question for a minute. So for me personally, like how do I do it or as a company? Well, as I think as I, as I understand what's going on, mm-hmm. like you have these projects, mm-hmm. they have their project manager stuff. That's right. There's a hierarchy in Is place. there another level and then it comes mm-hmm. to you or like 
So I guess I'm I guess I'm I'm, I'm questioning logistics and leadership and sure. organization and mm-hmm. what have you learned along the so, way? So to be successful, you have to be incredibly organized to to run a construction project. You you the skill set you need you you. You've got to be able to plan ahead. You've got to be organized. You've got to be an excellent communicator because you are communicating with a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds with a lot of variation in education level and just knowledge or perspective. Um, from a, So I think that's why there's, there's multiple levels because you've got people who are day-to-day on a job site managing, planning and managing work. And then there's a level above that's another set of eyes of, okay, or, you know, are we thinking about this? What about this? And they may have, you know, authority to make a higher level of decision. Um, there's a lot of, honestly, there's a lot of legal things that have to be dealt with. There's a lot of, contra- we write a lot of contracts. Um, we have to negotiate a lot of different things. We're, we're protecting our interests upstream and downstream. Um, so there's, there's just a gradual, you know, increase in authority. So I didn't really answer your question about systems. Um, cause I don't really know. Do you do like weekly check-ins at. with every, all your, yes, like, I have a is weekly, that a, one yes. day you all meetings one day or like, no, how do you, how do you, I'm a professional meeting, uh, person. <laughs> yeah. So, um, in fact, my oldest daughter, when she was little, when she was, I don't know, three or four or five or somewhere in there, she used to play meeting at home because that's what I was always saying. <laughs> Shut up. I've got to go. I've got an early meeting. I've got a meeting. I've got to go. Um, I'm going to be late tonight. I've got a late meeting, you know, that sort of thing. And so she started playing meeting uh, when she was little, which was really cute. That is really cute. Um, and we would, <laughs> we would meet, and we'd go through our agenda, and <laughs> when we'd have our pretend meeting in her closet. Anyway, it was fun. But uh, no, I go to a lot of meetings. But as far as like folks who report directly to me, I have a weekly check-in with everyone. Yes, and then I have a weekly staff meeting, and then we do weekly business development meetings, and there's a monthly project review meeting, and it's just on and on and on. Okay, so tell, so how do you run a how do you run a great meeting? How do I run a great meeting? How does, how does anyone run a great meeting? How does meeting? anyone run a great meeting? But um, I'm sp- I keep asking things you. moving. I can, number one is preparation. Uh, and get nitty gritty with me. Like when do you send? Do you, do you okay. send out an agenda? Do you when do you send it out? Or is there, is there one? Are Most you, of my meetings are repetitive, and so the agenda is pretty much is, is set. Okay. Um, I do believe in sending an agenda in advance for meetings that are slightly different that people don't know what to expect. I mean, my weekly check-ins with my folks are. It's really their agenda. You know, they, they come and they give me an update on, you know, each of their projects and then we talk about other things. And I keep this master list of things. I, I do it in a spreadsheet, which I'm sure there's some folks who would be like, oh, come on, that's so, you know, 2003 or whatever. But I keep a big spreadsheet and I'm pretty good in Excel. And uh, anyway, but it's, it's my comfort zone. So that's but, your Bible of... Mm-hmm. things going on. Yeah, and it's got, you know, about 12 or 15 tabs in it or, or sheets in it. And I've got a sheet for each person who reports to me. And then I have one for myself. And then I have one for my uh, peers, my kind of dash lines, because I, I work directly with folks that are left and right of me. Uh, I have a sheet for them. And I print it. And I carry it with me, and I write things on it all day long. 
And then do and you I update it that update night? It? No, I uh, well, I update it maybe in a, when things are going well. I update it once a week. Okay. So. Mm-hmm. Cool. When things are off track, it may be several weeks. And there's <laughs> chicken scratch like all over it, and I've got all these crazy notes all over it. Um, but my, your day is is my day. I'm not in control of my day. And I'm in control as much as I can be of my day, but things just come up. And, you know, my big role right now is um, a lot of coaching, a lot of mentoring, um, and helping people solve problems. So, so do you, are you, do you like that now that you've, you know, you've moved all the way up? Or, mm-hmm. um, it's, different, it's a different job and different challenges. Do you, mm-hmm. do you enjoy this more or less? Do you miss being like more I hands it. in the dirt? I do. I'm, I miss being on a job site because it's fun. Yeah. It's really fun working on a project together. When you've got a team where everybody gels together, you're having fun. Really? Yeah. And you, you got a group of you got a group of subcontractors that you know when everybody's working together and you've got a good plan and things are going well. It's just it's just fun and seeing your building go up and and seeing it done. It's just it's it's really cool. That's got to be and pretty it, special. I yeah, imagine. it is. And and to me, it's like you kind of compete with yourself a little bit. It's this puzzle, and then you can compete for well, I'm going to get it done faster. Or I'm going to get it done with, you know, zero, you know, punch list items. Or I'm going to, you know, make this much money on the job or that sort of thing. You know, it's, it's this competition with yourself or your own team, which I think is pretty cool. So I do miss that. But what I really like is helping other people be successful. I really like that. I like when I've taught or coached... Um, and it clicks, and I kind of see it. And so I've got a few people that I've worked with um, for close to 20 years. So I have, I have somebody who works for me that we were on a job site together in 2001, 2002, where I was the project manager and she was the project engineer. And we've kind of come up together, and I think that's really cool. So I, I really like that, and I really like I really like solving a problem, but I'm not supposed to solve it directly anymore. I'm supposed to help other people solve problems. And so things I do is I say, well, let's think about this. What's the worst thing that could happen? What's the best outcome? How would we get there? And, you know, it's a very process-driven industry. And there are times when you need to break a process or you need to break some rule or you know best practice you know and and there are times when people say well this is how we do it and I said well why is this situation one where we can say that doesn't make sense and we can understand what the risk is and then make a business decision that's equal to the amount of risk that's there so oh wow and that's really cool. That is really I really cool. like that. Yeah, that mm-hmm. sounds like that sounds really cool. Like I get to go tell people to break when it's time to break the rules. <laughs> you know, it's time to break the rules, you know. Right. Or you know, it's also I work with a lot of engineers and a lot of Type A. You know, I'm right. This is the way things are. It may be black and white, and as as in life, not much is really black and white. And there's there's gray everywhere, and you got to look at what outcome you're looking for, and just because someone else may be wrong doesn't make you right. 
Uh-huh. You may not get to where you need to be by proving that you're right. Okay, we need to compromise, we need to communicate, we need to understand their perspective and figure out how to move things forward. So, I, I think there's probably many, many answers to this question, but maybe if you could give me uh, a few of the most common ones. But when a project goes wrong, <laughs> why does it go wrong? Oh, I don't know how. There's like countless reasons. That, that's, <laughs> I, so, thought, I thought that. But. So, uh, so in, in the construction business, it could be um, manpower. Right now, manpower is a huge problem in the really? Atlanta market. Huge, huge. Skilled, skilled manpower is, uh, is at a premium. Like at what level? Like, what do you need? In the field. People putting work in place. People who set tile. Okay. Painters. Plumbers. Um, certain trades are, are more stretched than others. And so what we're feeling right now is after effects of the downturn. Because in the downturn, people left the business. And, you know, construction certainly follows economic cycles. And uh, uh, during the downturn, either people left the industry or... Uh, people didn't come into the industry. And so now we're getting that lag from that time frame. So now all the work, there's so much work in Atlanta now, and manpower is at a premium. So so that, so back to the reasons a job can go wrong. So without manpower, you're not going to meet your schedule. And so then you've, you know, so you're going to be late. And anytime you're late, it costs you money. And time is money, uh, very much so in construction. Um, you could have a trade or a subcontractor, that trade contractor that is maybe not experienced in the type of project, maybe had some errors along the way. Um, you know, we manage, you know, trade contractor, um, they can default, you know, and then you've got a whole different set of problems. Um, you know, not the proper plan up front. Um, weather all kinds of fun all ways it can go things. wrong all kinds of things yes how has mm-hmm. the industry changed over your years or has it so uh, I wouldn't say it's the <laughs> most quickly changing industry um, there's certainly much more technology than when I started a lot of a lot of cool things with technology um, in that you know, there's a lot of 3D modeling, building information modeling that you do up front to coordinate, uh, you know, above ceiling in a hotel. You know, you've got a lot of stuff that's above the ceiling that you probably never think about when you when you go there, uh, from ductwork to, you know, water, fire protection, electrical, that, you know, it's hard to fit. And so we do a lot of that up front. We use technology now more so than we used to. Um, so technology's changed. Uh, a lot of man, I mean, manpower's up and down. Um, I think the industry is slowly becoming more friendly to a diverse, to diversity and gender diversity and that sort of thing, slowly. So, mm-hmm. um, Did you, or do you, have a favorite type of commercial project? Like, do you like, oh, it's the hotel, I'm excited, or, so, you know, or, or no? So for me personally, I like higher ed projects. I really like higher ed projects because... This is colleges and yeah, universities? Yeah, colleges. Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because uh, you're working for a client who's interested in a long-term building. 
and a building that's going to serve its student population. And so it's a pretty cool purpose. There's some cool architecture involved, um, quality of materials and that sort of thing can be on the higher side. So I did a lot of that when I was a project manager and, and kind of coming up through the ranks. So I really like that kind of project. Um, tell me about a project you're really proud of. So I worked at the state capitol for many years. Okay. We, um, the company was there for about 12 years. And so what we did was we had a different contract each year or, or scope of work each year. And one of the coolest things we did was uh, we restored Miss Freedom, which is the statue that sits on top of the Capitol. And to restore her, we actually took her off the Capitol with a helicopter. So there was a lot of planning, talk about a puzzle, uh, scaffold, we had to erect scaffold around her and rig her a certain way. I speak like she's a real person. I know she's, <laughs> not, I know she's not, but we, that's how we talked about her all during the project. And we scheduled a Saturday morning with a helicopter and connected her up and flew her off the building and landed her in a parking lot next, you know, nearby, very right. gently, <laughs> yeah. and sent her, sent her to be, you know, lovingly restored. And then, of course, she had to go back on by helicopter, which was slightly harder. But it was really cool. It's one of the coolest things that we did. Oh, very, so very cool. I've, no, got a, I've got a picture where I climbed the scaffold of me next to her face before we took her off the off the Capitol, which is pretty cool. Oh, outstanding. So. Maybe maybe you'll send that to me mm -hmm. I can put that in. I might. I was really young then, so <laughs> I might not <laughs> climb up there today if that scaffold was in place. But yeah, so yeah, we, we've, we've done some, that was, that was pretty cool. So like, where are so. you when you're, are you... Did you Where have any interactions I? with the governor, perhaps, when this happened? I did. <laughs> Somebody you like fed you that question. You like didn't I? I that forgot story. about that too. I was going to make an so, all cool segue. So there I, was a no. viewing. So there was the day that that we lifted her off the Capitol. Um, a lot of people came out to watch, and it became a little bit of an event. And there was the roof of the Sloppy Floyd Building, which is diagonal to the Capitol, was opened up for people to go up and view. And um, the governor was there, and I feel like he had maybe his granddaughters there that day. And which guy this is Purdue? I believe so. <laughs> yes. Uh -huh. And um, there was like a little rail near the edge of the roof, and I think I sat down there to watch, and he came up behind me and kind of like shook my shoulders like – you know, I'm on the edge of a roof, and he shook my shoulders like I like I was going to push me off the roof. And I'm like, "What's happening?" So yeah, that was my interaction with the governor. <laughs> All right, mm -hmm. outstanding. Yeah. So the project went off without a hitch. So we did some cool stuff restoring the Capitol for many years. So yeah. oh, very cool. really cool stuff. Mm -hmm. So obviously, this is a very high-powered, high-pressured job that you have. Mm -hmm. What um, what do you do to not freak out? To relax? What do you do to so um, that's a great, great question because I'm still working on that. <laughs> I've been working on that for years. It's an ongoing project. It's an ongoing project. Um, I will say that a couple of things. Um, 
I've worked, I used to work a lot of hours and I have been very intentional about not working like I used to work. Um, I need to be home. I need to be with my family. I need to disconnect. And so I have gotten really good at disconnecting on the weekends. Um, maybe not as much during the week, but on the weekends, I really try to not work. I used to work. Uh, or pick something up or do something and I have found and that, and that was bad you've, you've got to kind of stop you've got to have a break at some point in time of I think for me of some length of time uninterrupted by work and so I, I've, I've worked on that so what do you, um, uh, specifically like what do you do do you turn off the phone or yeah. no I might look at my phone but I don't open up my computer okay. anymore like if there's something I need to do I will but I've worked really hard when I'm at work, I'm at work. I'm all in at work. And um, and I try to be the same way when I'm home. Now, I don't always, I'm not always successful there, but when when you have kids, this is really, you're, you're kind of forced, when you have kids that need you, you're forced to figure these things out. And as my kids have gotten older, they, they require a different kind of presence from me that's not, it's not the same as when they're little kids. You know, little kids is really hands-on and is physically demanding and it's, you're on all the time. You know, now I have teenagers and teenagers are different. It's, it's, it's emotional um, presence you need to have in kind of a different way. And, you know, so, so as that's evolved over time, I have worked to figure out how to, to spend my time on the right things at work. And so things I do, I ask myself, okay, is this the best use of my time? Do I need to be doing this? Or is there someone else who's better suited to do whatever the task is? Um, where are my talents best served in the organization? Um, Am I, you know, are we just, is this just a waste of time? I mean, really evaluating what you're doing all day long. Like, am I, is there value in this? And am I the right person to do it? And I ask that a lot. And then, and then I also work, I'm really efficient and I'm really, I can, I can crank out stuff. I, I can, I can juggle a lot of balls, um, probably because of my super duper spreadsheet, but uh, <laughs> I can, uh, I can keep a lot of, a lot of things in the air going um, you know, and, and just, I'm, I'm always thinking about how I spend my time. How do I want to spend my time? So is this, is it continual or is it the beginning of every week? You're like, or like, is oh, this, constant. is this your constant just in your head? Do I need to be doing this? Is this the best use of my time? Can I? Oh yeah. All the time. Mm-hmm. Or I'll start something and then I go, why am I doing this? And then I'll stop. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's extraordinary. Well, I have, honestly, I, I work for someone who is very supportive of that mindset and works the same way. So I've learned a lot. I've had a very good, I've had a very good coach and mentor over the last 10 years. So that's constantly asking the same questions. Why are we doing this? Why? So let's, let's spend our time on the right things. Right. So really about thinking, it's really about being strategic in a lot of ways versus just doing things for the sake of doing things. So what would you tell someone who might be, who has not taken that step back? Mm-hmm. Like how, how can they start to think like that as well? If they're just kind of right now chasing every little mm-hmm. next task and not, I talk about it with folks that work for me all the time. Like how, what's, what's taking up most of your time right now? 
Is that the best use of your time? And sometimes it's yes, and sometimes it's no. Or sometimes it's, well, who else is going to do it if I can't do it? You know, and, and we have those conversations a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you do for fun? Well, I play tennis. Do you? <laughs> yeah, I do. Tell me about that. <laughs> so, um, so I picked up tennis about, gosh, five or six years ago now. And uh, it was a fluke. I didn't mean to pick up tennis. <laughs> oh, did I didn't mean run to run into a racket. What happened? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so we we joined a club, uh, really for my husband to uh, play golf. He's a he's he's a avid golfer, and as we had little kids, golf kind of went by the wayside. And when our youngest was, I don't know, three or four, somewhere in that range, and we started to kind of be able to do things other than just run after our kids, you know, he says, uh, I really want to play golf again. And here's this great golf course, you know, less than two miles from our house. Let's, let's, let's join up. And I'm like, no way. And, uh, that went on for probably a couple of years. <laughs> and, uh, finally, finally I said, okay, fine. Cause there's a pool and the kids will be, it'll be good for the kids to have a pool and you can play golf and that's fine. I'm not going to go there. Okay. I might take the kids to the pool, but this is not for me. This is for you. And um, we jump in. And next thing you know, we have a you know couple meals in the restaurant. And I see this tennis center that's like really beautiful, and it looks like vacation to me. The tennis center just looked like vacation. And so there was a you know beginners tennis you know tennis one hundred and one class one Saturday, and I was like, you know what? I, I can go I can go do something. Like this this the club's not just for everybody else, it's for me too. Like this is crazy. And so I went to a tennis one oh one and uh really enjoyed it. And then I started doing some lessons and then I was pushed onto a team and uh I'm on the same team that uh, from when I started with one of the ladies that I was in the one oh one class with. And uh, it's been phenomenal. It's been absolutely life-changing for me in so many ways. Um, developed just dear friends. And uh, it's how I stay active now. Because I don't really enjoy exercising, but I really enjoy playing tennis. And so it's like exercising without exercising yeah, to that's, me. That's a great thing if you can, you can con yourself into exercising and enjoy it. Which I know. don't. So, yeah. I don't. But yeah. through tennis, you but do. But I love tennis. And, and now I'm like a cardio tennis addict. And... <laughs> I'm out here for cardio tennis a couple times a week, and it's good. Outstanding. So, yes. Um, you had a health scare. I did. Have a health scare. Had a health scare? I don't had, know. Had? I don't know. Yeah. You want to talk about it? Sure. I do. Um, and that's a good, that's a good, uh, talk about the tennis team related to that too. But uh, yeah, so in January of uh, 2017, 2018, I'm sorry, January of 2018, Uh, I was diagnosed with breast cancer, and that was the result of a routine mammogram. I was called back in, you know, went through the whole thing with testing and and, uh, surgical biopsy and that sort of thing and and received that diagnosis, and that really hit me out of the blue because um, I... I just said I don't like exercising, but I'm actually pretty, <laughs> I actually feel like I'm a pretty healthy person. I eat pretty well. I'd been very focused on, you know, my diet and how I eat and what I eat. And I've been playing tennis and I'm exercising and I'm like, what? 
I'm not supposed to get cancer. And um, it was a pretty good diagnosis in the grand scheme of things. And then it was stage zero. Um, and so my treatment was uh, took less than six months. I ended up with, uh, I had to have surgery twice. Uh, and then I uh, had four weeks of radiation. So it could have been a lot worse. Um, but it was, it was a little crazy. So it was a very crazy time. Um, it was hard. It's really hard. So, mm-hmm. what were your conversations like with uh, your husband and your kids? Like, how do you talk about something yeah. like that? I told my kids right away. You know, I, I, I before I really kind of knew what was going to happen, I told my kids and my husband, of course, and and I called my sisters and and uh, you know talked to them about it. And um, you know, I remember telling the kids and my younger two you know, we're like, okay, like they didn't get it. But my oldest got it and said, okay, I'm going to be with you the whole way, mom. I'm right here. And uh, very supportive. Um, my middle daughter is, is not a talker of feelings. And so I don't know. And uh, I think my youngest was really scared. So she didn't know what she was scared of. She just knew that it was time to be scared. So, but it was fine. I mean, I knew pretty early. I didn't know right away. When I first got my diagnosis, I had no idea what my treatment plan was going to be. I didn't know anything. And, um, the, you know, one of the cool things when you're, when you're undergoing cancer treatment is the medical community is incredibly responsive and quick. And you move fast. Hmm. And I wasn't quite ready for that, but I was like, oh, like people would call me and schedule appointments. I didn't have to call them. And it was, it was, you move fast and you figure it out quickly. So of what's happening. And uh, I knew pretty quickly that, you know, never, never was it life threatening um, or anything like that. Again, it was stage zero. It was very, very early. Um, So we, we figured it out. Yeah. And then, and then my, my, uh, approach was, um, I'm somebody who powers through and I'm going to power through. And this is just one more thing that I'm just going to power through and I'm going to make my life as normal and as regular as I possibly can. And I don't want my kids to have anything but normal. And, um, you know, I didn't tell a lot of people. I didn't tell anybody at work. I, I shouldn't say I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell anybody except the senior team. So nobody who worked for me knew that I was going through this. Um, Why is that? Because um, I think people freak out. You know, you use the cancer word and people are like, oh, man, right? And people don't know what to say. And... Um, I was afraid people would treat me differently and not let me do my job mm. in, in, in an effort to be kind, really. But, you know, my job is to help people solve problems, right? Well, if you think, oh, crap, my boss has cancer. I don't want to burden her I with this problem. I don't want to burden her with this right now. And I wanted normal. I wanted everything to be normal. And so I didn't tell anybody until I was done. So, um, I mean, I told my, obviously, I told my boss who was one of my biggest supporters, biggest supporters. Um, and when you say yeah. that, what are you, what are you thinking of? How does, um, how does one support somebody going through something that's, like that? Yeah, that's, that's good. So for him, our, our relationship, we've, we've worked together for a very long time. 
Uh, we have, I, I think, a, a relationship of mutual respect and anyway. So that was our foundation. Okay, it was already a very positive relationship, a relationship where we can be pretty open and honest with one another, challenge each other at times, and that sort of thing. And so we're kind of starting with a very good foundation. And so when this came about, he would ask me questions, you know, and I would volunteer. Well, I went to this doctor's appointment, and here's what I found out, and this is what I'm going to do. And I'm not quite sure when I'm going to have surgery, but at some point in time, we're going to have to plan for me to be out for surgery. And he'd say, well, okay, well, how does that, you know? Um, I don't think he ever said, how do you feel about that? He may have. Um, but he would just say, well, what do, you, do you feel comfortable with this? And, you know, that sort of thing. And, and um, it was a good sounding board. So, so I had to, um, well, let me, let me keep going. So he was a great supporter, but I didn't, I didn't tell him it at work. I told my, um, my other big supporter was my tennis team. It's freaking phenomenal. I got gifts. <laughs> they <you> know, <laughs> sent me these lovely notes and texts and that sort of thing. And, uh, just having a community of women to lean on, uh, is, is just, it's, it's incredible. It's just incredible. And I, I got things kind of out of the blue, you know. One of, uh, one of my teammates, um, a few days before I was scheduled to have surgery, brought me this sweater. And uh, it's like this fluffy cardigan sweater. <laughs> and I took it to the hospital. And I wore it while I was waiting for surgery because it's cold in the hospital. And uh, just thoughtful things like that. I, right. had, uh, I had another, t- when, I was undergoing, when I was going to radiation, I did radiation every day. Or, or Monday through Friday for four weeks, and I would go at lunchtime. And uh, I had another friend who said, I am coming to pick you up, and I'm <laughs> going to drive you to radiation, and we're going to have lunch, And uh, which, was, which was great, because a lot of people will say, I'm here if you need me, okay? And there's nothing wrong with that, or let me know if you need something. Well, most people are not... I shouldn't say most people. Let me just talk about me. I was not, I am not one to go, I need help. That's not me. Or I didn't know what I needed. Um, you know, and somebody goes, I'm here if you need me. Okay, what is that really? I mean, I, I get that, but what do I do with that? You know, and... Um, That's, I mean, that I want to just hammered that home that is such to me an excellent point yeah and I wanted to hear that I mean I that's not wrong to say but it meant it it meant so much when I just got the okay I'm coming to pick you up today is a whole lot different than hey if you want me to come pick you up and take (laughs) you one day I'm happy to because I'm probably never going to ask right and most and most people won't because they really need it well and because I'm I'm the way I work is I power through And when I had a cancer diagnosis, I said, all right, this is something I got to power through. And, um, yeah, so I would, I would encourage the, just do something, just do something for somebody. And I had people send me food. I got, I got these great meals from the tennis team and other people at work sent me food and that sort of thing when I was, um, recovering from surgery and that sort of, you know, that, which was really, really awesome. My sister came to stay for a few days when I had my first surgery, uh, you know, cause when you have surgery, you gotta be at the hospital at like six o'clock in the morning. Well, I got three kids. So, um, she came and made sure everybody got to school and everybody got home from school and that sort of thing. So, um, you know, and she just, 
just having her there was really cool. Just being, you know, just being there. But, you know, I wanted people to say, I'm here if you need me. But what I also wanted was for everybody to be normal. Because what happens is all you do is talk about cancer. (laughs) And you really, after a while, don't really want to talk about cancer. You really just want to talk about maybe your tennis game or, you know, I don't know, what the kids are doing at school. And that kind of stuff is really what I wanted. And, you know wanted somebody to tell me a joke, you know, give me some jokes and that sort of thing. Um, But I'll I'll tell you what I, what I felt like I did well was um, in dealing with doctors that are talking to you about things that you may or may not understand. I asked a lot of questions and I was not afraid as I had a surgeon who talked quickly at times and would explain things to me. And I felt like I got it, but then when I went back to think about it, I go, wait, did I get it? And so I was never afraid to say, walk me through that one more time. And, or to say, I don't understand. I just don't understand, tell me again. Just, just repeat what you just said to me. Let, me. let me process it for a minute. I wasn't afraid to do that, and I think some people may be. And the other thing is, I, I didn't do what they recommended that I should do. So, um, so I had staged, I had three locations of cancer. Um, and they were, all, again, they were all stage zero. Nothing had spread, never life-threatening. And I had three different doctors tell me that it would be easiest if I would have a bilateral mastectomy. And is that the word they used was easiest? Somebody did, yeah. And so there's pros and cons to what you do. You have a decision to make, okay? And in a lot of medical situations, you don't have decisions to make. Well, I had a decision to make. And uh, I could either, you know, go for bilateral bilateral mastectomy or I could, um, and then reconstructive surgery, or I could have three lumpectomies, followed by radiation, followed by ongoing medication. And I think every woman needs to make their own decision. There's no right or wrong answer. For me, the idea of having a body part cut off was very unappealing. I understand the opposite side that some women are like, I'd never want to think about this again. Make it go, you know, just just go the other route. Both are perfectly acceptable. For me, I opted to, to avoid the mastectomy. Was this... And so, hmm I mean, or just for a second. It, was this a... Um, was it like a, a gut emotional reaction? Did you, like, you know immediately which one you wanted to yes, do? Yes, I knew immediately. Yeah. But all these doctors, because my original diagnosis was I only had... I, I was only affected on one side. And then you you go through all this additional testing to make sure that they have your entire situation. They know your entire situation. So you start with a mammogram, biopsy, and then there was another suspicious place in my mammogram that was not biopsied. So then of course, now I gotta go to do another biopsy, and then you go have an MRI, and then you, and now they have a complete picture, and there was more than they originally thought. So they're like, well, if you, you know, let's just, let's just bilateral mastectomy, let's go. And I said, I don't, I don't, I don't feel good about that. But I went through the process. I met with met with a plastic surgeon. So if I did go that route, I wanted to understand what reconstructive surgery looked like. 
Um, I wanted to understand the medication. I met with a radiation oncologist. And so you go through these series of meetings with all these doctors that are part of your care team, because now you've got a team. And um, yeah, and, and made my decision. So, and, and at the end of the day, at, at, at my follow-up, my surgeon said she learned something from me. So, oh, wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What she advice did. would mm-hmm. you give? I mean, you may have already said it too, just in telling your story, mm-hmm. but to someone who receives a diagnosis like this? Um, ask questions. Yeah. Understand it. Really think about what you want to do, and, I, and don't, let, don't let someone push you toward a decision that doesn't feel right for you. Because that, that's really what I, I felt that nobody, they didn't push me, but they just said, this could be easier. Okay, well, easier is not, that's not who I am. <laughs> <laughs> so that's not who I am. And it, it's just, you know, and um, my, sur- I remember when I, when I, when my surgeon and I kind of came to our final, final decision, you know, she goes, I can't undo a mastectomy. So if you're not 100% on board with this, let's not do it. And I said, I'm not 100% on board with it. And she, and so, so for me, what I then, you know, what I have in front of me now is a chance of recurrence. And, um, you know, I'm supposed to be taking a medication that's supposed to reduce my chance of, of recurrence, but the side effects were so awful that I opted to stop taking it. So, you know, we'll see. What were the side effects? Oh, um, hot flashes, <laughs> which I know are coming at some point in time. Anyway, um, <laughs> that was one. I mean, but to me, that's the easy one. Like I can, I can power through that. Also, um, for me, it was um, my mood. It, it changed my mood and who I was. Oh wow! So yeah, it, it. I felt like it really affected my quality of life. Now, not everybody experiences that. So. Yeah. So I tried medication two different times. The second time I stayed on for about seven months. And uh, yeah, I was unhappy for seven months. So I had a friend who went through breast cancer and uh, then she was doing some volunteering. I think she was on the Atlanta, the board of Komen for a little while. Mm-hmm. And the advice that she would always give, and since we're talking about it, I'm going to give her mm-hmm. advice, mm-hmm. was to carry a, a tape recorder or a digital, and now I guess you would carry your cell phone right. and just record You know, when the mm-hmm. doctors are talking fast, you think you have it and you don't have it, just right. to have that because yeah. she found herself like mm-hmm. just kind of losing her place in her head of where she was and what was going on and and that kind of thing. Yeah. So I'll just throw that it out there as another. It can happen because there's a lot of thoughts rolling through your head. I imagine you know, so. There are. I mean, I did genetic counseling. I did, I mean, all kinds of stuff. I mean, and, and so, um, you know, I guess the other advice I would give is Find your support network, but your support network is separate from your spouse. Because what I, what I see now that I didn't see then is it's as hard or harder for your spouse than it is for yourself, for you. Um, In what way? Um, you know, I think... You know, if you think about watching somebody that you love go through a health scare or a difficult time, you feel helpless, you know, and you have your own fears and you have your own concerns and you have these kids to worry about, you know, like, let's make sure the kids are okay. And you've got your own stuff to deal with, you know, as the spouse. And um, I think that's hard. 
I think that's really hard. I didn't see that when I was in the middle of it because when you're in the middle of it, it's just, you're just self-absorbed really. And, um, in a lot of ways and your, your spouse needs support too. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's, that's me looking back on this, you know, what, how many, you know, 18 months out, but, um, and the other, the other thing I would say, yes. So support networks, you know, obviously your spouse is going to support you, but you need a different support network as well. And, um, the other thing is, and someone told me this ahead of time, but I didn't get it until I experienced it is one of the hardest days of cancer treatment is when you're done. It's so overwhelming because, like I said, I, I kind of had this, this mindset of, I can handle this, no big deal. I'm, well, it was a big deal, but I'm gonna power through. Um, I want my life to be normal, and I did. I mean, I did everything I normally did. I remember asking the doctor, well, when can I play tennis again? And she looked at me like, you wanna play tennis? I'm like, yeah, I wanna play tennis. When can I play tennis again? And I didn't miss much time, um, you know, cause that was normal for me. And it was good for me mentally to be playing tennis and to be doing something that I'm thinking about. I'm not thinking about everything else. But when you get done, um, then you have time to take a deep breath and go, holy shit, what did I just go through? And it's overwhelming. It's really overwhelming. And then you go, okay, well, what's next? And then your mind starts going into the whole, did I make the right decision? And what if cancer does come back? Well, I have to do this again. And I don't want to take these meds, but they're telling me to take these meds, right. but they're making me miserable. And if I stop taking the meds, Am I going to get cancer again? I don't really want to go through this again. And um, that takes much more time to process than I allowed myself. So I, I would say that's a, that's a good year right there yeah. to figure that out. And so, you know, so things that, you know, so my, my oncologist, I have an oncologist, so that's weird, but uh, <laughs> my oncologist, you know, told me that, you know, alcohol consumption is, is a, you know, big risk factor for women in breast cancer. Well, crap, I need to limit <laughs> how much I drink now. And, you know, I wouldn't say I was a big drinker, but I was a social drinker, and I still am, but I, I don't drink like I used to. And that was a little hard um, just to kind of grasp, um, just to kind of figure that out. You know, and then you kind of, you know, other factors for cancer are processed sugar. Well, I've, we've already established I've got a sweet, sweet tooth. tooth yeah. So that's cool. And then, you know, another one is stress. Well, okay, when someone <laughs> tells you to not be stressed, right? right. All of a sudden, I'm stressed about being stressed. Of course. You know, and I'm like, holy crap, I'm stressed. Oh, my gosh. And then I'd go through this whole mindset of, I'd have this whole thought of, are the cancer cells growing right now? And I went through this whole thing, and I've, I've gotten to a place where I think I'm, I'm letting that go. I'm about to let that go. So how have so, you gotten to that place? What, it's time. Okay. I think it's just time. And, and, and a lot of realizing um, it's out of your control. You know, control what you can control. Um, you know, I have no idea why I ended up with cancer. Like I said, I feel like I'm pretty healthy. Um, you know, maybe I did drink too much. I don't know. I don't think I did. But, um, you know, 
it's out of your control. And I think there's so many just environmental factors and other things that you just can't control. And so you just, you just deal with it as best you can. So I'll tell you, um, one thing that I did, uh, that I want to talk about. Remember we talked about being thankful. Yes, I I do. I'm coming back around to that. Normally it's my job to bookend us like this. Yeah. But, um, but there's a and you also asked me about how I handle stress and how I keep things going and that sort of thing. So I'm a goal person. And a few years ago, we, I had a really kind of bad year at work. We had some bad projects. And I really, I really let it get the best of me. And I got to where, for stress relief, I was just doing mindless things. And... I got to that. I, I reflect a lot at, at the new year. I don't believe in resolutions necessarily, but I like to set some goals, you know, tomato, tomato, right? But um, at the end of 16, I said, you know, I don't think I read a book all year. And, or I maybe read one book. And I'm a reader. And I said, all right, in 2017, I'm going to read 20 books. Now, some people go, wow, that's a lot. Some people go, Shh, that's nothing. But I was going to read 20 books. It didn't matter what book I read. It could be like just junk, whatever. And then I said, well, I'm going to read two books a month. And so that I should finish early just in case, you know, because I'm a planner. That's I got to right. build myself some contingency. <laughs> and so I read 24 books that year. And um, I thought that was pretty cool. And so I just reestablished this habit of reading. And I've been reading since. And uh, I'm probably reading about the same, almost at the same rate. And, um, and so in the beginning of 18, this is pre-cancer diagnosis, okay? I said, what am I going to do this year? Because now I've established this new reading habit. What is this year going to be? And, you know, I can, and in my job, it's my job to think about what can go wrong. And that can be very negative at times. Um, can be, I can be critical at times. And I said, I'm going to focus on gratitude. And, you know, this is, you know, a lot of people talk about gratitude and gratitude journals and that sort of thing. Well, I did it, but I broke it down again on my goal. My goal was I was going to write down in 2018, uh, I think it was 250 things I was grateful for. And that was going to break down to like a five item list each, each week. Okay, so it, did, it wasn't daily. It wasn't like so, like this to me was very achievable. And if I didn't do it one week, I could write 10 the following week, and I gave myself some flexibility. But I had to have a roadmap of how I, because, like, you know, I don't want to write 250 things like on December 31st, right? <laughs> yeah. I want to, you know, right. establish the habit through the year. Yeah. And so I started that two weeks before I got a cancer diagnosis. And I kept that up all year long. I far exceeded 250 things. I, um, they were small things, they were big things, they were medium-sized things, they were random things, um, you know, to include, there was this woman, when I came out of my biopsy, and I was in the elevator of the hospital, trying to get to my car, I was sobbing, I was crying, because number one, it was very painful, number two, I was um, obviously scared. And I was crying in the elevator, and this strange, stranger woman put her hand on my shoulder. And that's in my book, you know, forever. That's in my book. So, um, so I started this, this gratitude journal, and I did it for a full year. And it's amazing. It's really amazing. And so 
I, for whatever reason, I didn't keep doing it. But instead, what it has become is I email my husband things I'm grateful for, and then he emails me back things he's grateful for. And we do that almost every day. Oh, my God. I love that. Mm-hmm. So I am thankful. <laughs> <laughs> but I like to be thankful all the time. You know, and it, it's to me, it's not a Thanksgiving thing. It's a, you know, I just like to do this. And so, uh, so my husband and I have been doing this for, uh, I don't know, three or four months or so. We've been emailing each other things we're grateful for. And we don't hit it every day, but most days. And again, it could be something really tiny, just really, really tiny. It could be about the other person, or it could just be about, you know, my lunch was really good today, or yeah. the sun is shining today, or, you know you know, some joke that our, you know, 10 year old told us or that sort of thing. So anyway, got a couple of follow ups on that. Yep. So when you started your reading habit back, Mm -hmm. uh, when did you, when did you read? I think a lot of people have time or maybe think they don't have time. So when did you, when did you work that in? At night mostly. Okay. Yeah. At night. Um, uh, you know, I'm not, you know, I, I don't have like a lunch hour or anything like that. You know, I don't do anything like that. I mean, I'm, I'm like I said, when I'm when I get to work, I'm at work. Yeah. Um, and I work through lunch and that sort of thing. So mostly at night. Mm-hmm. And was your gratitude journal? Was this handwritten or did oh, you yes. use electronic? It's okay. got to be handwritten. Now our emails are obviously not, but <laughs> I, I'm a firm believer in a notebook and a pen and yeah, uh, writing things down. You know, because I might sketch a few things here and there and I would write you know I would write gratitude at the top and some some you know some I kind of divided it by month and some months I might make a little smiley face and some months I might draw something different and I think that goes back to architecture school because we had sketchbooks we'd carry around with us back then oh yeah yeah but I remember things when I write them down with a pen versus when I type them. They stay in my they stay in my brain a little bit better. So Yeah, I'm the, I'm mm-hmm. the same way. Yeah. I just have a couple more questions and then I want to get to our kind of perennial okay. questions. Okay. Um, since we're recording in December mm-hmm. and January's around the corner mm-hmm. and you're a goaler. I know, I don't know yet. Okay. <laughs> what's it what is it going to be? Yeah, what's the goal for this year? And so, then yeah. yeah, I think it might be something around time with friends. That's what I think it might be. Um You know, uh, because I would say I've kept up my, you know, I I spend, that's what I like about tennis, too. It gets me around my friends all the time. But somehow we've gotten away from some of the other, you know, getting together with friends and that sort of thing that we used to do more. Um, You know, cancer kind of, we kind of hibernated a little bit during cancer, you know, and just kind of getting back into that. Let's go do fun things. Let's get out with our friends and go do fun things. So I think it's going to be something around being social with our friends. And do you have a a, a longer term kind of like, what is your current like kind of five-year goal kind of thing you're working on? This could be personal or I'm also curious at work as well. I mean, you've reached this position, but there are other positions higher. Is that... So, Something you want to yeah, do? but but I'm not sure I want the next position. That's what I was so wondering. So I'm 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 pretty good at my current role. I'm not saying I'm perfect, but I'm pretty good at my current role. But I've been in it for a while, and so it's hard to you kind of got to shake it up a little bit and create your own goals here and there. Um, but honestly, I'm thinking about what I might do next, and this is years down the road. Um, I used to think that at some point, you know, when I was nearing a retirement age that I would, um, want to teach 
and you know one of the one of my skills at work is making things happen and getting things done I'm a pro I can put processes in place I can just kind of make a lot of stuff happen I wouldn't mind uh shifting into the world of nonprofit. if I found a cause that you know I could really be passionate about and helping an organization you know with their daily operations and business I think that would be a really good fit oh so. very cool mm-hmm all right, let's go to the uh, perennials. Okay. Uh, you've said a quote already, I and did. I usually ask a quote and quote. Right. Uh, do you have another one you nope. want to share with us? <laughs> All <laughs> That's right. it. <laughs> what would other people say your superpower is, and are they right? Um, I think it's just getting stuff done, you know? Yeah. Do you have a favorite failure? So I was thinking about that. I'll tell, I'll tell one little story. Um, my oldest daughter has a, is allergic to tree nuts, and she's self-diagnosed as a kid. That's and, impressive. And I didn't listen to her. Okay. <laughs> I didn't think she uh, knew what she was talking about because she was, you know, a kid. And, you know, when she had anything with almonds or, you know, almond flour or that sort of thing, she said her throat was scratchy. And I'm like, okay. And... Um, I kind of blew it off. And uh, it turns out that cashews are an ER visit. And uh, I fed, I gave her like a bar, like a kind of all natural, like I was in this whole mode of no processed sugar and let's, you know, let's eat real food and let's eat clean and that sort of thing. And so I gave her this bar that had cashews in it. And uh, she immediately knew it had nuts in it and started having all the signs that elevated beyond anything I'd ever seen. Um, and we hightailed it to the ER and it was kind of your classic TV show. She's in a wheelchair and we were running down the hall oh in the God. ER to get her fixed. <laughs> so, it was, um, it was awful, um, you know, and, but what I think about is that could have happened a lot of other places and we needed to know she was allergic to nuts. Not that I'm advocating for this, but we needed to know she was allergic to nuts. Um, we were at home and where we live, we're, you know, a block and a half from the Emory ER <laughs> and, uh, they did fuss at me for driving there. I'm like, come on. We're like a block and a half away. Um, but anyway, and, and so we were able to deal with it. And so, of course, she carries an EpiPen and that sort of thing around now. And now we know. But she reminds me all the time, like, you didn't listen to me, Mom. You didn't <laughs> listen to me. And I didn't. She's right. Yeah. She's right. So, And I feel badly about that whole circumstance. But, you know, yeah. Do you have a favorite investment? This could be... I don't intend it to be financial, but it certainly could be, but something you've invested in yourself. Um, I mean, if you did the Apple IPO, that would work too. No, I didn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I did. I had Home Depot stock way back when that worked out really well for me. Sweet. That my dad bought me with that college savings account. Remember that? Oh my God, that's he what bought, he did with them? He bought Home Depot shares. At one point in time, and and, and when he's I, a uh, handyman person too. And like when he, we got well, obviously, and so that was way back in the day when Home Depot was like 
not what it is today. And it was, it was, yeah, that did, that was really good for me. So yeah, I forgot about that. Good job, dad. Mm-hmm. Um, what's your ideal no work Saturday? So and if you want to throw some work in there, you can, but yeah, well, no, remember I disconnect on, I disconnect like you, on the weekends. You, you try to disconnect on the so, weekends. So, um, so my ideal no work Saturday would be a spring day. Okay. I really love springtime. I love the when everything's starting starting to come back to life outside. So I would uh, drink some coffee for a while. I would sit, <laughs> drink some coffee. I would go outside and I would work in my yard. And I don't know what I would do. I okay. would, you know, I like to do a lot of different things. I really enjoy kind of puttering around my yard. And um, I would do that for hours, hours, maybe have lunch, maybe that my husband's made for me and, uh, you know, clean up at some point in time, maybe switch to a glass of wine and that swing in my backyard and admire (laughs) what I got done that day. And then maybe go, maybe go out to dinner. So maybe if I could work a tennis match in, that'd be good too. All right. That's a good day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you have a favorite piece of furniture? I have a couple of things in my house that were family pieces or things that my that my dad fixed. And so I, I like that. I like to think about that. Okay. So, mm-hmm. uh, last meal. Appetizer, lunch, dinner, beverage. And it doesn't have to be your last meal. Probably seafood of some sort. That's I know. a little too a little too wide open. It is wide open. Um, is it a fish? Maybe scallops. Ooh, I really yeah. like scallops. Right. I'm more of a, yeah, that key lime pie for dessert. Oh, is that that that's, that's the really where dessert. I wanted to know? Okay. <laughs> that's the favorite dessert, key lime pie. Uh-huh. No way. Graham, so when when Graham did crapper, Graham, Graham cracker crust? Mm-hmm. Has that been pretty consistent in your life, or like when did when did that win? There's a restaurant on Jekyll Island called I believe it's called the Crane that has this fantastic key lime pie, and I used to go to this annual conference in Jekyll every year. And I had key lime pie there, I don't know, probably 20 years ago. And I was like, this is the best key lime pie I've ever had. And ever since then, I've been a little mental about key lime pie. Oh, I love that. Whole I food, absolutely Whole love Foods that. Whole Foods has a really good key lime pie. Do they really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> As does Alon's, I believe. And um, so in the last... Publix will work in a pinch. Publix? I yeah. like that the little yeah. mango uh-huh. one they have, No, too. no, no. Just straight up key lime pie. <laughs> yeah. I like uh-huh. the mango one also. Okay. Uh, in the last five years, uh, what new belief, behavior, habit do you think has most impacted your uh, life? It's just gratitude. The gratitude. Yeah, yeah. it's got to be right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. What's your kryptonite? Uh, I don't like a day without a plan or a day with nothing to do. Mm. So I'm sure I'm opposite from a lot of people, but... I got to kind of have a purpose, a purpose. I got to get something done. I got to, I got to make something happen every day. So does like, if you plan to do nothing, mm-hmm. does that alleviate that? Or is it still, or that no? That makes it better, a little okay. bit better, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not very good at sitting around and doing nothing. I'm really bad at that. You're looking at me like I'm crazy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm really bad at that. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, that's interesting. That's the way you interpreted that. Like, mm-hmm. like I didn't. Mm-hmm. I, wonder, I wonder. I wish I could see my face and know what that was. <laughs> yeah. You're like, I love a day with nothing to do. Do you? Um, no. Okay. I like. 
I like a couple of hours with nothing. I like okay. pl- I like planned nothing. That's why okay. I kind of ask that follow up. And if okay. I plan the nothing, then right. I'm good. But if it's, I agree with if that. I'm just yeah. if I turn around and I've wasted it two hours and not known what I've been doing, but still yes. quote relaxing, I, that drives me crazy. Me too. Yeah, I can't stand that. Yeah. Uh, is there anything you wish I had asked you that I didn't, and you would like to bring up? I don't think so. I think we've covered some good stuff. I think this so has been too. fun. I've really enjoyed it. I have too. Yeah. Uh, thanks for doing it. Yeah. Thank you. Until we meet again. Okay. Thank you for listening to the Origin Story Podcast. The show is produced by Pinecone Turkey. To learn more about Pinecone Turkey, visit pineconeturkey.com, where you can sign up for the Flock email, a twice-a-month newsletter that delivers a short film, poetry, a short story, and visual art right to your inbox. 